I met a guy recently who told me that he spends roughly $250,000 a month. I talked to another person recently who made $50 million at the age of 30. What do you do with that money? How do you spend it? How do you not spend it? What do you invest in? How does it change your relationship with other people? If you meet a rich person, these are questions everyone wants to know, but you're too embarrassed to ask. Well, guess what? I'm not too embarrassed. That's the whole premise of MoneyWise. We talk to real people who have made a significant amount of money, and we ask them all about their finances, and they're incredibly transparent about it. My name's Sam Parr, and the podcast is called MoneyWise. That's one word, MoneyWise. It's by my company, Hampton. You can find MoneyWise wherever you get your podcasts. Check it out. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. For newspapers, the good sign is that readership is up in the COVID-19 era. But the balance sheet bad news is that no one is buying ad space. We examine an industry that was already struggling and that now may be permanently scarred by the crisis. And before Catherine Hamlin came to Ethiopia, Childbirth was too often leaving mothers with debilitating injuries. We look back on the life of the obstetric surgeon who operated on them and cured them until she was 92. But first... Across America, around 2,000 people are dying every day of COVID-19. And while some big coastal cities have begun to get a grip on the virus, new hotspots are breaking out, with Midwestern towns being hit particularly hard. Yesterday, the House approved its next coronavirus relief package to the tune of $484 billion. But as jobless figures soar, several states are going against public health advice in a rush to get things back to normal. In Texas, Governor Greg Abbott has been gradually reopening his state over the course of April. We have demonstrated that we can corral the coronavirus. And Georgia's governor, Brian Kemp, is starting to lift lockdowns today. We will allow gyms, fitness centers, bowling alleys, body art studios, barbers, cosmetologists, hair designers, nail care artists, estheticians, their respective schools and massage therapists to reopen their doors this Friday, April the 24th. The current thinking about opening up in America is happening on a state-by-state basis. John Fasman is The Economist's Washington correspondent. So the most recent news is that this week, South Carolina opened up its public beaches and opened up some retail with social distancing and sanitation requirements in place. So today, Georgia will allow certain businesses to reopen tattoo parlors, gyms, hair salons, bowling alleys. And then next week, Tennessee and Ohio look likely to let their stay-at-home orders expire and allow some businesses to reopen. So the decision to reopen states lies with governors, and some governors are making the decision to reopen earlier than others. Are those decisions roughly in line with what the, the epidemiology suggests, that, the, that they flatten the curve and that they, they should be doing so? Well, not quite. I think we've seen a couple of states that look like they've begun to flatten their curve. The rate of hospitalizations and deaths in New York has fallen. 
California and Washington also seem to have flattened their curve, a couple of other states as well. But it looks like cases or deaths in Texas, Georgia, Florida, those three states are reopening now, that they won't hit their peak for a couple of weeks. So these reopenings are not quite in line with what epidemiology would suggest it should be. We've heard that, that some governors are, are kind of getting in cahoots and, and uh, aligning their reopening procedures and so on together. Has that not sort of knitted together into a, a broader plan? It is not. So you have a pact of governors on the, in the Northeast, that's six states in the Northeast. You have six in the Midwest, and you've got the three Western coastal states. None of those states are among the ones that are easing restrictions right now. And so the states that are doing so now are all Southern. They're led by Republican governors who tend to be Trump-aligned. And so those pacts of states that I mentioned, the Eastern, the Midwest, and the, and the West, really seem to be led by epidemiology in a way that, say, Georgia is not. So in short, there is, a, there is a, an increasingly political dimension to these decisions. Yes, although I don't want to make too much of that because you have some Republican governors like Larry Hogan in Maryland and Mike DeWine in Ohio and Charlie Baker in Massachusetts who have really been very sensible and very good and very science-led. And it seems like rather than a strictly partisan identification leading to reopening, it's, it's the sort of the degree to which the governors are aligned with President Trump that is leading them to consider reopening sooner. And, and so what about the ones that are, that are being led by the science? I mean, the, what we've seen in terms of uh, evidence success stories elsewhere is, is, is widespread testing, contact tracing, and the like. I mean, what, what does that look like in the American context? Well, we don't have enough tests in America, and I think that's, that's something that everyone acknowledges. There was a recent report that came out from the Safra Center that recommended that America have 5 million tests per day by June and 20 million by late July, and that once it does this, it will be able to catch those asymptomatic transmitters, especially the ones who come into contact with lots of people. That number to some seems quite pie in the sky. So Ashish Jha, who is the head of Harvard's public health school, says that 500,000 tests a day is an acceptable floor. America's testing around 150,000 and has been throughout the month of April. So we just don't have the sort of national testing regime in place that will let America and will let each state respond to outbreaks in its state. And it doesn't look likely that that number will, will even reach that 500,000 floor. It doesn't look possible now, but it's certainly possible with quick concerted federal action. But concerted federal action is something that a lot of people have been uh, have, have said has, has been wanting in this crisis. I'm, I'm wondering how much of the situation America finds itself in has to do with a, a lack of that, that kind of leadership at the top and how much of it is just that America is, has devolved so much of its power to the states and this will be a fragmented response no matter. Well, look, I think federalism is still America's great strength. It's a big, diverse country, and you want to give local authorities, states and even counties, as much freedom and leeway as possible to respond to the way things look on the ground to them. Having said that, the federal government can coordinate responses in a way that nobody else can. That has been lacking so far. It doesn't mean that it will always be lacking. It doesn't mean that the federal government won't do it, but it has been slow off the mark. And if it wants to reach that testing threshold, Soon, it has to jump into action quite soon. Somewhat confused by the fact that, that President Donald Trump started off by saying he had absolute control to do just that, but then ceded it back to the states. It's true that during the pandemic, he has tried to sort of play both sides. He has tried to claim authority while disavowing responsibility. And, you know, in fairness, he is in a tough position. Just four months ago, he had a booming economy and record low unemployment that he was going to run on. That is no longer the case. So he is looking for a way to respond. Um, what he seems to want politically is to reap any public health gains from lockdown while making governors accept responsibility for any economic hardship. 
But it is interesting that Georgia's governor, Brian Kemp, who's very Trump-aligned, his decision to reopen gyms and spas and tattoo parlors, Donald Trump condemned him from the podium. I told the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, that I disagree strongly with his decision to open certain facilities which are in violation of the phase one guidelines for the incredible people of Georgia. So Trump does seem at least somewhat to be led by public health experts. He has been going on TV every night with Deborah Burks and Anthony Fauci, who are both respected public health experts. Uh, and so that's why I have some hope that if the government does want to leap into action, it could do so and it could ameliorate the worst of this pretty soon. And we could be in a position by the summer to have an adequate testing and contact tracing regime in place. It just requires a lot of action and it requires it now. But in the meantime, some states, some of which, as you say, are ready and some which are not, are, are undertaking their own plans to reopen. I mean, how do you see this, this, this playing out in, in that medium term? Well, I don't think every decision to reopen is condemnable. I think it's less a question of keeping everything locked down versus opening everything up and more a question of finding the right way to ease restrictions gradually make sure that social distancing and sanitation requirements are enforced, and most importantly, make sure that America's testing and tracing regime ramps up so that if there is an outbreak, it can be quickly corralled and responded to. John, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure, Jason. You can hear much more about America's lockdown lifting plans on Checks and Balance, our sister podcast, later today. This week's episode visits small-town Wisconsin to find out what people think of relaxing restrictions, and here's from a medic on the front line in the Bronx. You can find Checks and Balance wherever you get your podcasts. I met a guy recently who told me that he spends roughly $250,000 a month. I talked to another person recently who made $50 million at the age of 30. What do you do with that money? How do you spend it? How do you not spend it? What do you invest in? How does it change your relationship with other people? If you meet a rich person, these are questions everyone wants to know, but you're too embarrassed to ask. Well, guess what? I'm not too embarrassed. That's the whole premise of MoneyWise. We talk to real people who have made a significant amount of money, and we ask them all about their finances, and they're incredibly transparent about it. My name's Sam Parr, and the podcast is called MoneyWise. That's one word, MoneyWise. It's by my company, Hampton. You can find MoneyWise wherever you get your podcasts. Check it out. If it feels like you're doing a lot more checking the news these days, you're not the only one. Since the pandemic began, traffic to the New York Times has grown by more than 50%. It's the same at the Washington Post and also the Guardian, to name a few. Local news websites have seen an even greater boost. But while circulation, particularly in the digital realm, has been going up, profits are going the other way. Unlike most industries which are facing a huge shock in demand, the newspaper industry is kind of unique in that their products are in great demand at this point of time. Leo Marani is The Economist's senior Britain correspondent. And yet they are facing catastrophic economic conditions because while they may have lots and lots of readers, there isn't actually any money coming in. And that's just because people aren't out picking up a newspaper in the way they normally would? I mean, that's definitely one part of it. So let me let me tell you by way of an example, Jason. So the Yorkshire Post, one of Britain's best regional papers, added actually 1,000 subscribers in recent weeks. And traffic to the websites of JPI Media, which owns the Yorkshire Post and a bunch of other papers, is up, you know, between 25 and 50%. So in terms of readers, things are going great. 
The problem is, even today, despite everything, the news business is mostly funded by advertising. And advertising has dropped off a cliff. Some of the biggest advertisers, such as hospitality, travel, retail, they've almost stopped advertising. And across the board, advertising is down, which means that newspapers can't actually do anything with all of these new readers that they have. They can't sell them to advertisers. And you mentioned a local paper. That's that's surely true also for, for the industry as a whole? I'm afraid so. I mean, nobody is immune to this. The Guardian, one of Britain's biggest newspapers, if not one of its most profitable, is expecting revenue to drop by about 20 million this year. That's about 10%. And it's furloughing 100 mostly non-editorial staff. It's the same across the industry. The Daily Mail and General Trust, which runs the Daily Mail and Mail Online, is asking senior journalists and executives to take salary cuts of up to 26%, although it is offering them shares as compensation for that. Ender's Analysis, which is a research firm, at the end of January, when you know it was assuming a normal trading environment, forecast that ad sales in the British press would fall about 8% this year. Because, you know, ad sales have been falling year upon year upon year. That figure, it now predicts, will be 30%. And, and this is a problem beyond Britain as well, surely? Absolutely. So, I mean, this is this is not just a British phenomenon. You look in any country and you'll see something similar. Take the US, for instance, the world's biggest media market, Gannett, which is the largest local newspaper owner in the country, has lost like 94% of its value since last summer, much of that loss coming since mid-February. You look locally, the Tampa Bay Times, Florida's largest newspaper, which I believe is where you're from, Jason, has switched to a twice-weekly print edition after it lost a million dollars in advertising. But the the discussion so far has been about, let's call it dead tree media, actual newspapers, magazines, what have you. What about online-only properties? So I think, if anything, the situation is even worse there. The thing with dead tree media, dead tree papers, is that they have a rump of loyal subscribers who are willing to pay cover price for their products. If you think about most websites, let's take Vice or Vox, for instance, they give away their stuff free. They're almost entirely ad-funded. I mean, you know, a lot of websites over the past couple of years have been trying to switch to subscription models, but that's a difficult thing to do. It's a hard thing to get people to pay for stuff on the internet, especially if you're not the New York Times or the Financial Times or, dare I say, The Economist. For example, Vox is furloughing nearly a tenth of its staff, reducing pay. Vice is instituting four-day work weeks and reducing pay. And it's it's similar. It's, you look at any online-only news media at the moment, and they are having a really tough time. So what's your view on what happens when, when the pandemic has passed? I mean, will we get back to the, the, the kind of more tolerable decline we were seeing before? I mean, tolerable is one way of putting it, Jason. But yes, I mean, you're right to point out that things are already bad. It probably will be worse than before. So in 2009, after the financial crisis, print advertising rebounded more or less to normal levels of decline. This time, at least according to Enders, that's probably not the case. Up to half of what's been lost may never come back, partly because there, there are going to be big structural changes in the economy, marketing budgets are going to shift. But also it's worth mentioning that the same is true of circulation. To give you an example, in 2012, News of the World, a British Sunday tabloid, shut down and it was replaced by Sun on Sunday. But the new paper, which was you know run mostly by the same people, owned by the same people, it only picked up about 60% of its predecessor's circulation. Again, because people get out of habits. But equally, people get into habits. I mean, a lot of people who would normally pick up a newspaper perhaps are you know picking up their laptops and, and logging into places they weren't finding their news before. 
Yes, you're right to say that. And that is one tiny silver lining on all of this. So online subscriptions are skyrocketing in some places by as much as 300%, 500%. But it's important to remember, this is from a very low base. Also, online subscriptions aren't rising quickly enough and in big enough volumes to replace what is being lost. However, the silver lining is that young people seem to be paying for news online now and hopefully forming new habits that will last for decades to come. Leo, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me, Jason. For a lot more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist. To get 12 issues for $12 or £12, just go to economist.com slash radio offer. When Catherine Hamlin looked out of the aeroplane window at this rugged Ethiopian landscape, she saw a really biblical scene and it looked a little bit like New South Wales where she'd grown up. It has these armies of gum trees planted along steep hillsides, very much like the Blue Mountains. Fia Metarocco is a senior editor at The Economist and contributes to our obituaries column. She'd grown up in Sydney in a big family. She'd studied medicine during the war. And then having got married to another doctor at the end of the 1950s, she answered an ad in The Lancet calling for a gynaecologist to set up a midwifery school for nurses in Ethiopia. In the end, the Ethiopians really got two for the price of one. Catherine and her New Zealand husband, Reg. Ethiopia, it turned out, was in some trouble medically. Every single day when the gates of the hospital where they worked swung open, she would find these groups of women, women who thought that perhaps she was their last best hope. The attitude of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church encourages child marriage. These young girls are betrothed when they're eight or nine, they're married at 12 or 13, they find themselves pregnant in their very early teens. When they go into labour, sometimes there is absolutely nobody to help them other than a wagesha, a village doctor who offers nothing really but a potion of herbs. Their labour goes on and on. There's nothing to do for them but to squat and push, often for five or six days. For the mother, the protracted labour often leaves her so badly injured that her vagina has ruptured, her bladder is shredded, her rectum is torn, urine and feces leak out of her body without stopping, and very often then her husband leaves her, her family and her village community turn their backs on her, and very many of them just spend their time lying on their beds legs drawn up to their chin, lying in a fetal position, trying to stem the stinky flow. Their only company, really, is shame. They had terrible injuries, all these women. There were injuries that hadn't been seen in Europe or in America, really, since the 19th century. But all over Africa, particularly this part of Africa, they were endemic. 
For the Hamlins had come to Ethiopia really to build a midwifery school, but faced with these women and all this suffering, they would sit up late into the night in this little mud-built house in the hospital grounds, studying the history of this injury, which is known as obstetric fistula. They ordered books, they were in touch with other doctors, they went over the evolution of the treatment, they reread the autobiography of Marion Sims, an American doctor who in the 1850s had treated similar injuries among American slave women. Of the two of them, Reg was the more conventional one. He was older, but he was also used to always doing things the way they'd always been done. Catherine looked quite conventional. She always wore this straight A-line skirt, mid-calf, but mentally she was far more flexible, more prepared to experiment, more prepared to radically cut away scar tissue, for example, or try out new techniques. So many of her patients, of course, being so badly injured were just too far gone and they died, but many recovered. And when they did, they would go home, always in a new dress that she gave them for the journey, money in their pockets. Within a few years, the hospital that they had set up, which was known as the Fistula Hospital of Addis Ababa, was curing more than 90% of its patients. It was an extraordinary record. And surgeons came from all over the world to see her work. In 1993, when Reg died, Catherine found herself... By this stage, almost 70, taking on yet more work. And by that stage, she had treated more than 25,000 fistula cases. In the early 2000s, Oprah Winfrey was having a great debate with one of her producers who was adamant that Catherine Hamlin should be brought to America to talk about her work in Ethiopia. But Oprah really was in two minds about whether American mums were really ready for such a graphic tale. Finally, Oprah gave in and Catherine Hamlin flew to Chicago to appear on the Oprah Winfrey Show. Please welcome Dr. Catherine Hamlin. By that stage, she had taught herself to speak to crowds of people. She taught herself to ask for money. And how are you funded? We beg. You beg. My, my husband used to say we're professional beggars. By the end of the show, Oprah Winfrey was so impressed by the work that Catherine Hamlin was doing that she herself signed a personal cheque for $450,000, which was the cost of running the hospital for a year. We're not patching up old people for a few more years. We're giving a young, beautiful woman a new life. And this is why I love them. Helping other women through this fistula surgery was Catherine Hamlin's life. She was still operating when she was 92. She really only stopped when she couldn't stand anymore without the sticks that she needed to walk. And she did all this because she really believed in her heart of hearts that this is what God wanted her to do. She wasn't a missionary doctor, she always said. She was a doctor who was a Christian. She thought of herself as an ordinary woman. The Ethiopians called her Emaye, which is Amharic for mother. And they thought of her as a saint. 
Sophia Metarocco on Catherine Hamlin, who's died aged 96. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And see you back here on Monday. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.